Well, good morning again. Um, well, this morning we're going to uh, turn in our Bibles to the Psalms. And when we look at the Psalms, we find a, a collection, really, of 150 Hebrew poems that have been written throughout the history of the nation of Israel from the time of Moses to the time of Ezra. And then uh, they're organized into five books or smaller collections. Uh, these collections actually give a portrayal, if you will, of the relational history between God and Israel. Primarily, this is done through the Davidic covenant. Okay, so in relation to uh, the covenant made with David as king. And the following statement not only will give a summary of the history, but also reflect the central hope of every believing Israelite as it's portrayed in the Psalms, namely that messianic reign of the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Okay, so that is uh, a covenant made with David that points to another king who is going to come, and that is the Messiah. And so uh, Dr. Ross in his commentary says that in general, books one and two, that's the Psalter, books one and two of the Psalter, lay out the foundation of God's program in the Davidic monarchy. Okay, book three reflects the failure of the monarchy and was shaped with the exile in mind. That is the nation going into captivity and exile. And then books four and five, the last two, present the restoration and the hope for the future with the Lord as king. Okay. And the whole purpose for giving a summary statement is to see the big picture. And that's what our hope is for today, to see that there is a big picture in the Psalms. It's not simply a random collection of 150 hymns, but they're collected and they're put into a collection with a purpose in mind. And I believe that divine purpose has been preserved for a reason by God Almighty to show us his plans for not only his people at that time, but the blessing that comes to us as a result of the fulfillment of those purposes in history, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. And so uh, before we look more specifically at one of them, it's good to see that there is a forest and not simply a bunch of trees. And that's the whole reason that we're going to consider these as a whole. And today we are going to look at one of those psalms, and it's found in book 3. And you notice from the slide, it occurs at the time of failure in the Davidic monarchy, at a time when the nation itself is uh, either preparing for or going into exile as a result of the failure of every Davidic king that sat on that throne. Okay, And so that's just to keep in mind what I'm understanding here as the bigger picture. And there are actually 17 psalms that are included in book three, and they begin with Psalm number 73 and end with Psalm 
89. This uh, particular collection is also known as the Asaphic Psalms. And that is because 11 of these 17 Psalms are ascribed in the title to the Psalms to Asaph. Okay, and so they call them the Asaphic Psalms. Okay, uh, most of the scholars <clears throat> are in agreement that Asaph here is a reference to the family of singers and not to Asaph specifically, who would have been the first in a long line, you see. And the reason for that is because some of these psalms that are included in this would have covered a period of time that would have exceeded the life of Asaph himself. And so that's why this larger collection is attributed to the family of Asaph and not simply to him. Uh, Some additional characteristics of these psalms in book three, okay, they often will refer to the history of Israel, okay? So we see that in, for instance, uh, Psalm 74, Psalm 78, uh, Psalm 89. They deal with all of the historical events in the life of the nation of Israel. So it's history. Uh, they tend toward a corporate rather than an individual focus. So nationally, rather than the struggles of an individual, and what one of the Israelites might be going through. It's the first time in the Psalter that we see a national confession of sin. In fact, if you, if you turn over, okay, to, uh, in this same book, looking at Psalm 78, okay, in verse 8, all right. We see that stated in verse 8, not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So it's recognizing something about the nation nationally, a confession. Okay? Spirit not faithful to God. And then down in Verse 17, yet they still continue to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. Okay? And then uh, once more, we see this in uh, Psalm 79. If you'll turn to Psalm 79, and there we read in verse 8, Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us, Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. So there's there's a confession of sin. Earlier in the Psalter, when they face opposition, you could see they had a completely different attitude. So, for instance, in Psalm number uh, 44, okay, in 44 verse 17, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, and we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Okay, their attitude back then seems to be a little different. Basically, we haven't done anything wrong. We don't know why this is happening to us. So we see a shift in book three, and the first time we get a national confession of sin in this psalm. And another characteristic that is evident here is the portrayal of God 
as a shepherd, using shepherding imagery with Israel as a flock and God himself as the shepherd. And this shows up in a number of places in book three of the Psalter. I will pick only one, Psalm 80, verse one, give ear. Shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. And so we see these characteristics of book three. All right. And by and large, we can say that this group of Psalms reflects a sober realization that the nation of Israel, under the leadership of the Davidic kings, has not attained the rest, the rest which uh, was promised from all of their enemies in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, okay? And God had promised David that rest, okay? But they had not attained it and were instead subjected, even at this time, to a rod of correction, okay? A discipline which was also promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It was just in another place in 2 Samuel. Verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies. In verse 14, I will correct you with a the rod of men. Okay? And so that correction culminated in a time of exile for the nation. And that's really what this collection of psalms Uh, is leading us to see, all right? And this dearth of godly leadership never goes unnoticed by God. In fact, in fact, we are going to see from Psalm 82 that God summons them to court, okay? He summons them to court, and then he holds them accountable, for their administration. We will begin by reading through Psalm 82 as a whole. And from there, we will look at it verse by verse. So, Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, your gods And all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possess all the nations. Amen. The the scene that unfolds before us is that of a courtroom. Okay? And it's, it's not just any courtroom. 
It's not the people's court. Okay? It's the Supreme Court. It's the Supreme Court where God Almighty presides. Okay? And in verse 1, the court is assembled. And the psalmist there describes God standing, it says, in the midst of these leaders for the purpose of judgment. Okay? This is not a consultation. He's not getting them together in order to consult them. Okay? That's not the picture that's portrayed here at all. Okay? This is a judgment. And two matters concerning identity show up if we were just to compare uh, some of the different English translations uh, with what the text of the Hebrew really says literally. Okay, And what I want to do is just look at some of those differences because some of you may be reading from another translation. I'm using the New American Standard. But the terms that are used in the text, it says Elohim. It's, it's a word for God. Elohim is standing in the congregation of El. Okay, So Elohim is plural and El is singular. He will judge in the midst of the Elohim. Okay? And so we see these different understandings of what those words mean. And so we're going to talk about that some. But the New American Standard says God takes his stand in his own congregation. Okay? Understanding El to be the assembly of his own, his own personal congregation, meaning the nation of Israel, generally. He, he judges in the midst of the rulers. The New King James, God stands in the congregation of the mighty and judges among the gods, okay? And the ESV, God has taken his place in the divine council, okay, as it were assembled to, to consult with one another, okay? In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment, all right? And so by looking at them, this brings up a couple of matters of identity, Okay, first it, we want to know who the assembly itself is. What that first reference, the assembly of L, what is that referring to? And second, the actual identity of those that are assembled then. And so those two matters are something that we need to give some consideration to. And uh, the first option is that the assembly itself are those gathered in one location. Okay, that is that they they are in the same place so that every court or place of rule where judgment is occurring, God is standing present there. Every judicial decision that's rendered, (laughs) it means God is there. Okay, that's the first option. All right. So every court or place of rule. A second option, it's an assembly of those that share something in common, okay? They may be dispersed in different places, but uh, different locations altogether, so they are a member of the same class, okay? In this case, God is seen as standing to judge the entire class of rulers, and we would see that as every position of authority, Okay, so anyone who is in any position of authority that's been delegated by God, he stands there in the midst to judge. That's that's the significance of these two. And either way you take it, 
you can see it's a sober time of judgment. This is not something that's uh, to be taken lightly. Uh, well, there are a couple of other psalms. They use a different, uh, what I call a synonymous word for assembly or congregation. They're both uh, used in Psalm uh, 26.5. It mentions the assembly of evildoers. Okay, And it doesn't mean that they're in one place. It's talking about all the evildoers. Another psalm, 82, in the same group, of, uh, or uh, Psalm uh, Proverbs 21, I should say, it's the assembly of the dead, and he's not referring to uh, the dead that are all gathered, but he's referring to all of the dead regardless of where they're gathered. Okay, It's the assembly of them. And so in this psalm, Psalm 82, I'm taking it uh, to be the assembly of the mighty, as we saw in one of those translations. Uh, and those mighty share something in common, namely an authority to rule. So I'm understanding it here as every position of authority. God is standing in the midst, okay, of every position of authority for the purpose of judgment. The second matter concerns the actual identity, okay? Who are they, all right? And this is something that comes up as well. And as you heard, I lived in Bulgaria for 16 years. It's an orthodox country and in orthodoxy, this is one of the passages that uh, they turn to, Psalm 82, and we'll look at the verse later. But this is a passage that they understand refers to men for a different purpose than I will. But nonetheless, we're going to see here that it could be referring to human beings. That's option one. Or Elohim could be referring to the angelic beings. Okay, we see this in other places, all right, in Scripture, Job in particular. This actual identity I'm understanding here, following the New American Standard, I take them to be human leaders, those who have been appointed by God to render judgment on his behalf on earth. Okay? And as such, they are called gods. The word Elohim is used because they are, are ordained by God to represent him on earth as rulers and judges with governing authority that has been delegated to them by God. And that's why he stands in the midst to render judgment. In verse 2, the indictment is actually given. Okay? So we had the court assembled in verse 1. We have an indictment given in verse 2. And God is pictured as speaking. Really, from verse 2 all the way through to verse 7, he's portrayed as the one laying the charges against those who were appointed to rule or to lead. And the there are two charges that take the form of a question. Okay? They take the form of a question and that question is 
how long? How long? Okay. This indicates that these things have been occurring for an extended period of time. Now, keeping in mind the long history of the nation of Israel, from the time they went out of the land of Egypt to the time of the exile itself, we're not talking about a short period of time. We're talking about judges that ruled at a time when the every man did what was wrong in his own eyes. We're talking about a kingdom that was set up under the Davidic covenant, established by David following the failed rule of Saul. And then the long history of kings throughout that time period who who failed one after the next after the next. And so the question comes up, we're not talking about something that occurred overnight, right? It's a long period of time. How long? How long? And the two charges really come up. The first is that of judging unjustly. That is, they're perverting justice by the, the decisions and ruling in favor of those who do evil so that evil itself flourishes. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Rendering your decisions on behalf of those that are doing the evil. <laughs> you see, God doesn't like that. He doesn't like it. So evil itself flourishing. And a second charge that he lays is that of showing partiality to the wicked. It, it literally reads to lift up the face of the wicked. To lift it, to lift their face, to, to Pick up their countenance, if you will, okay? Indicating that they are regarding the person rather than the truth in the judgment of the matter, okay? Paying regard to the person. They judge based on either the person's rank or their position or the wealth that they have or their relation, okay? It's the buddy system my brother, my uncle, my, you know, whoever, on behalf of that. This may also involve some form of bribery as well, which results in both judicial blindness and a perversion of justice, okay? A perversion of justice. Now, speaking of the nation of Israel, when they were, when they were, commanded to render judgment. Well, God gave them specific instructions about that and he laid it out through Moses and and said, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 19, you shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe. And then he tells them why. Why? For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Okay? So there's a reason for this. Okay? Bribery affects people. And unfortunately, we lived in a country where that occurred all too often. You get your people into a school where there's limited slots, a little bit of here and there under the table. Uh, we had a neighbor who committed a horrific crime, actually in a drunken stupor, but because he had enough money, lightened the sentence a little bit less. In fact, he didn't even pay a sentence at all. You got the right 
funds you can get out of just about anything. And so God here calls them to account. And their judgment is governed by their own personal interests and not by what the law requires or what justice itself demands. And they are perverting rather than upholding the authority they were given. It's a perversion of authority. Okay? And guess who that authority is supposed to be reflecting? God who's ordained it, you see. And so there's another reason why he calls them to account here. Okay? Now, this charge and these particular charges have specific reference to those who are in authority in Israel. In Israel. They are the ones who have mismanaged the trust that's been committed to them as if they had no accountability at all to God for their distortion of justice. However, as we've seen from the introduction, I believe that what this psalm does is extend that and the passage we read from Romans this morning confirms that if anyone is in any position of authority, that authority is theirs not by right, but by being conferred by the God who created, you see. So by application, it applies equally to every person who is in any position of authority. Now I'm taking it to be a position of authority regardless of whether this is a magistrate or a court. This could be someone who is in charge of a hospital. This could be someone who's running a business. This could be anyone who is in any position of authority that is subject to the things that they're being charged with here, right? Unjust judgment and showing partiality, okay? Why? Because that authority is conferred by God. And in verses 3 and 4, the just requirements are commanded, okay? And here we see actually God commanding them to do what they had been appointed to do, but were not doing at all, okay? And the fact that he commands them, that he tells them to do this, implies It's not too late to change. I think that's a picture really of God's grace, his patience. If he was patient with the nation for that lengthy period of time, and now he's commanding them to change course, that's a manifestation of God's grace for one, okay, when he's giving them a corrective. Come back and do what I've commanded you to do all along. You see, it's a course correction. I had a friend who was in the Navy and they did a midterm review, they called it. Okay, why? They wanted to do a performance evaluation. If the man was off track for going to the next rank, he had time to change course, a correction to get it right, you see. And I think that's what God's commands here 
are doing as well. And four commands. These are imperatives. They're in the imperative moods. They tell us these four commands are given in two verses that prescribe exactly what the corrective course should look like. Okay? He tells them to vindicate. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them. And I'm taking this to be the weak and needy. Deliver them, the weak and needy, out of the hand of the wicked. In Hebrew poetry, they use parallelism. Parallel words are used to describe something. And I believe when we talk about the weak and the fatherless, they they share something in common and they're joined together. These are those that have no one to defend them. Normally, the man in the home, the father, is the one who provides his defense and protection for the family, but we're talking about those that have none to defend them. So they're, they're identified as weak, okay? And the afflicted and destitute, they have no means to defend themselves. They haven't the resources to defend themselves. And so they're the needy, the weak and the needy. It's groups, you see, those without persons, and those without provisions, no one to provide for them. God calls the judges because God is a father. He portrays himself as one who protects and provides. And you know what? He cares for the afflicted and the destitute. <laughs> he gives foods to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field in due time, it says in Scripture. He gives them their food in due time. He cares and by extension, those who he has appointed to rule in positions of leadership, he calls upon to do the same, to render that kind of judgment on behalf of those who are unable to defend or provide for themselves. And it's not simply because they're poor or orphans that they're shown favor, but because of the defenselessness being without any form of natural protection, that this appointed ruler is to maintain their rights justly on behalf of God. We were living in Bulgaria, as I said. We lived there for 16 years. And when we first arrived in the country, we met a young girl who worked for Campus Crusade. And uh, it was years later, toward the end of our time in Bulgaria, both of her parents had died, and the only thing that was left to her was an apartment building, and it was located right downtown in the center of Sofia. In fact, it was right at one of the main hubs in Sofia, so it was the only thing of value that the girl had at all. But as a result of her parents' death, she went into a deep form of depression, and they put her into a mental institution because they don't really know how to deal with depression there. And while she was in that institution, the hospital administrators, the nurses, the doctors, I don't know who all was involved, but somehow they let a group of mafia men come into the hospital with papers while she's under medication, and she signed away her rights to her only property to them. Okay? Defenseless. Weak. That's just one example. I could probably come up with dozens of others of kind of 
atrocities that take place and it's people who are in positions of authority who are supposed to protect those that are in their care who are not doing it that he's dealing with here. And as I said, it's not simply those that in court or as our ruling authorities in governing positions. Okay, it's any position of authority whatsoever. She would be one of those who was defenseless, in fact, who did not receive the justice that was due her in her state of despair. And verse 5, okay, the instability of injustice is described. Another question arises here concerning who, who are they in this verse? Okay, they, they do not know. Well, it could be the people who are misgoverned, like the young Bulgarian woman, okay, that are in view here. They're, they're described as misgoverned and misjudged and misled, in which case they're portrayed as the ones who are hopelessly groping about in the midst of all of the corruption. And that could be what it means here, walking about in darkness. They look for it and there's none to be found. It could be referring to them. Okay? That may be the they. Or it could be the judges who are actually misgoverning. Okay? They're the ones that are being described as ignorant, unrestrained, willfully blind. Okay? In which case, their failure to change is seen as eroding the entire moral fabric of society. Okay? What they're doing is shaking the foundations of the society itself because of what they're doing, you see. Now, I'm understanding it here to be the judges refusing to do what's required. It's commanded. God's called them into court for it. And here they refuse to do it. They continue on in their ignorance. And if I had time, I would go to another chapter in the Gospel of John and look at something that the leaders there were doing wrongly there at that time concerning Christ. In fact, it's one of the places in the New Testament, it is the other place in the New Testament where this psalm is quoted from, Okay, dealing with these human leaders. And I understand it to be the judges here. They, they don't know or fear God. They show no regard for men. Instead, they think they are God, you see, and are not accountable to anyone, especially not accountable to God because of their position. Their heads have become inflated. And this results in the erosion of society at every single level where justice itself is being perverted. Okay? Towns, cities, counties, states, countries, nations. Okay? No societal stability when this kind of injustice prevails. There is none. All the foundations are shaken. This, this includes, okay, personal security, social comforts, commercial prosperity, national peace, 
national security, okay, and religious liberty. I probably don't need to tell you, you could probably turn on the news and see that this is a, this is a disease that's affecting every nation in the world today, ours included, okay, ours included, all right? People do not feel safe because people are not safe. The laws that are designed to protect don't protect. Those that are appointed to positions of leadership are distorting the leadership that they've been put in and bringing all kinds of things to the society that we live in that is destructive and damaging to society itself. In fact, Dr. Ross mentions this, and he says the general observation is that judicial decisions that rule against godliness and uh, and righteousness signal the beginning of the end for a society. Whenever it takes place, it's not long until that society itself is destroyed, okay? Anarchy, because people will rebel when that happens, okay? When the government is no longer doing what the government or those who are in leadership are no longer doing what their position of leadership requires, then things fall apart. It dismantles by that lack of justice and righteousness, okay? I work with Indian pastors, uh, meet with them every week electronically via Zoom. And right now in their country, they have what is known as religious liberty, freedom, on the books. It's in, the, it's in their constitution. But the government does not support their beliefs if they're Christians. And so as of now even, they're shutting down churches closing them down, looking for registration. If they haven't been registered over a period of time and they, they're forbidden to assemble together, I've talked to a number of them who have had their house churches shut down. They can't get property to rent for a building because of the injustices that uh, I've already mentioned that take place at every level of government, and it's happening in their country as well. I have pictures of one of my students who was dragged out of a place in one of the villages where they met for worship by a radical group and then beaten for their assembly to worship in that place. They don't have legal protection if they convert to Christianity, although they supposedly have religious freedom. If they convert to Christianity, they are required now to go down and register with a police station signing a confession that they were not forced to convert to Christianity. And when they do that, they lose their Social Security benefits, the equivalent of their Social Security in the country, because they believed in Jesus Christ. That's an example in another country where those who are appointed to rule and uphold the laws of their constitution are not doing that. In fact, they're using them against the people in their own country. And the society, okay, as Dr. Ross points out, it's the beginning of the end of a society when we cannot trust 
those that are in positions to lead. In verses 6 and 7, the sentence is pronounced on these unjust rulers. And despite the fact that God appointed them to their position of authority, they will not be spared, you see, from his righteous judgment. And once again, okay, they are called gods here. Elohim is the word that's used. I said you are Elohim. I said you are gods and sons of the Most High. And this is a title, okay? This is a title that is conferred by God. He gives it to them, okay? And it's conferred on beings. As we've already said, it could be angels or it could be men. I'm taking it here as men in this passage, all right? And the reason that they're giving this, given this title is because they represent God on earth. The God who we cannot see, we should be able to see in those whom are our appointed leaders. They should reflect the nature and character of the invisible God. And that's not being done, you see. They are representatives of God on earth. And they do things that God does, okay, They judge, they determine right and wrong, okay? They rule, providing leadership and governing, all right? And also, they pass sentences. In the courts, this takes place. Every time a sentence of life or death is passed, well, that is something that is reserved because God is the one who appoints life and death. And so the leaders who are doing that, making those decisions, They are making those decisions on behalf of God, he says, and he will hold them accountable, you see. And that's what this is all about here. And this is the verse that I mentioned before that is used in orthodoxy to understand that men are becoming God. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. But here, the privilege, you see, that they have of leading is being distorted, okay? And instead of judging rightly, they're judging wrongly. Again, in Deuteronomy, the nation of Israel, regarding those that are appointed to rule, we read, you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike, okay? You shall not fear man. Why? You see, for the judgment is God's. He expects them to render judgment impartially, righteously, because it's his judgment that he expects them to execute so that their verdict is God's verdict. And when they are not the same, guess what? They will be held to account by God. And that's where the judgment is taking place in this sentence. The sentence is being given by God in his court. Okay? You will die. Whatever dignity the title confers, it's it's temporary. It's temporary. They will die as all men where they will face the judgment of God.
It, it's because of the distortion of the privilege of leadership, the high appointment, okay, and the commission that has been given to them that God holds them accountable. That title does not render them immortal. That's what this is actually affirming. Okay? I said you are gods, but that does not, not mean that you are immortal. Okay? That you're unaccountable. That's not what it means at all. Even if their pride tries to persuade them otherwise, they will face judgment and die like men. The wages of sin is death. And whatever they've told themselves in their mind because of their position and their authority, it holds no sway with the impartial justice of God. The text says you will die like men and fall like one of the princes. Mm. This is a figure of speech that is uh, identified or known as a merism. Okay? A merism. And it's used here to signify every mortal, okay, man or prince, okay, common or ruling. It makes no difference. It's everything in between. That's what amerism is doing. It's using the two extremes to include the entire class altogether, okay? And so they will remain mortal by nature, and die and face judgment just like every other man. Well, the Lord stops speaking, 2 to 7, and in verse 8, really the court is, the court is in, adjourned here, okay, in verse 8. And the psalmist concludes, really, with a prayer. And it moves us really beyond the, the failures of every human ruler to the righteous rule of God. Okay? The righteous rule of God. Elohim is used here in this verse. Arise, O Elohim. Arise, O God. Okay? It's used for the fourth and the last time. Two times it's referred to human rulers, and two times it refers to God, okay? And here it is, the second and last. We started with God standing, and we end with a prayer to God to, to, <laughs> to arise, to stand, okay, again in this psalm. And this psalm really pictures the union of deity and humanity. Okay? It pictures a union that takes place. It's not the improvement of man that's displayed as that which attains worldwide righteous reign. If you remember when we started, I said these psalms, these specific Gesaphic psalms, occur in a period of exile at they demonstrate the failure of the Davidic monarchy. And in fact, I would go so far as to suggest they fa the failure of every human ruler to bring righteousness on earth. 
which is reason for the prayer itself. You see, he's praying to God that God would do something that no man has been able to do. Okay? And it points to the incarnation, the condescension of God, where God becomes a man and does that which man has failed at doing ever since Adam. We lived in a country of Bulgaria where there was orthodoxy. And I mentioned this doctrine of theosis is what they call it, where man becomes God, is the doctrine of deification. And this is one of the passages here in Peter, okay, where we are partakers, made partakers of the divine nature. They see that as man becoming God. Well, that's not what's being portrayed here at all. This is picturing the incarnation where God himself becomes man. Okay? God becoming man. And he does that through the promise of the of the Messiah. Okay? And so we have in this psalm the anticipation, if you will, of the incarnation. Okay? The incarnation. The fact that it was possible for men so to represent God as to be called gods or divine was a foreshadowing of the incarnation. Okay. Remember I said there was hope. Well, following these Asaphic Psalms, the fourth and fifth group of Psalms, are going to come back to that hope, but we see it here in a kernel form where there's a union of the righteous God with man so that there can be a righteous reign among men on earth. And it points to the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It shows up more than one time. If we were to look at the other Psalms, we would see this as well. Okay? And so we have this picture And the psalmist calls on God himself, Elohim, to take specific action, namely to judge the earth. It's a plea. It's it's a plea or a prayer, if you will. It uses an imperative here, arise, stand, asking God to do something. Okay. And specifically to render his righteous judgment, just as he promised. Okay. And he doesn't limit it to the nation of Israel. It is the earth, all the nations, everywhere, you see. It's not limited in any sense. And the reason is given for this expectation. It's because it is he who possesses the nations. This is another allusion, a reference, if you will, to the Messiah. If we were to go back in the Psalm 2, God has established his anointed Okay, and he tells him, ask and I'll give you the ends of the earth. Okay? They're anticipating that day in this prayer as well. When the Messiah who is appointed as the heir and the possessor of the ends of the earth is on earth ruling as the righteous judge. So it points us in a hopeful direction, you see. We can't look around us. I used to tell that to one of the men in the market. Every time a new election would shape up in our country, 
I would buy my fruit from this man in the market in Bulgaria, and he would always ask me what, you know, what I thought it was the, uh, you know, the best candidate for the new president of the United States. And I told him, well, you know what? I don't really put my trust in any of those candidates. I, I don't think that I've found any of them that I've been satisfied with the way they've judged in the first place. I said, but my hope is in another place. And I always turned it as an opportunity to share the gospel. I said, if you're looking for righteous reign, you're not going to find it with men. There might be some that are better than others. And we pray for those. And we should pray for those. And we're going to see that's one of the applications that we draw from this. But I wanted you to know that my hope lied in another realm, you see. And I think that's what we find here in the Psalms as well. And specifically in this Psalm. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possess all the nations. There's so much instability and suffering as a result of the abuse and mismanagement of those that are in authority today. Not only in this country, but around the entire tottering world. The reason those foundations are shaken is because the injustice and the partiality that is shown wherever you turn. We see and hear of rampant corruption, injustice, the rewarding of evil and the punishing of those who do good, the destruction of marriage and family, uh, brutal and unjust and I would say even tyrannical wars, military coups. In fact, if you follow the news at all, Burkina Faso, just another coup occurred. This is the second in this year, military coup coming and taking over power. Okay. And while we may be tempted to think that things will never change, this psalm assures us that they will. Okay. How does this knowledge of what is coming in the future help us right now? Well, let me suggest a couple of things by way of application. I think it points us. Okay. To the present comfort that comes from understanding and knowing the providence of God. It was mentioned this morning, God's care and providence for this church as he was praying for the offering. Well, I I don't think that that is something that should be taken lightly. I think we should find all kinds of comfort in the providence of God and the unfolding of events that take place in the present time, right now, in his absolute dominion. In the midst of the ongoing injustices of our day, he has not turned a blind eye. A demonstration of his patience, grace. But we then are called upon to trust the providence of God right now when we see things happening that we are displeased with and should be displeased with. I think a second thing that this psalm does is it invites us to do as the psalmist himself did and to pray. To pray for our leaders all of our leaders, okay, to grieve when there is an appointment of those who are ungodly and to rejoice when godly leadership comes to power. I think we can do that, and I think we should be praying for those. There will be elections, midterm elections coming up, and we need to be praying that God will bring people who will judge justly without partiality to those positions. I think it also exhorts us to prepare, to prepare 
for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who has been promised. And one of the things that I would like to suggest is that for us who are believers, it means that we live today for that day as his ambassadors, begging, pleading with those who do not believe to be reconciled to God. In fact, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, just as the scripture says, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And for unbelievers, that's what they're called to do. I think that's the application, to recognize that there is a day, but the judge who has been patient with the nation of Israel has been patient with you, but his patience will not bear forever. A day is coming, you see, and the only way to escape that day is to kiss the sun, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because that day when he comes as the righteous judge, then it will be too late. So as believers, let's take encouragement in the providence of God, pray for his work in the lives of those who lead and live in expectation of the coming of Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel as ambassadors while we wait. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you once again. We thank you, O Lord, that you alone rule in righteousness. We are thankful, Lord, for those who have led in days gone by, and I believe there are still men and women in positions of leadership all around the world whom you have appointed and placed who are ruling in righteousness. Lord, sustain them, strengthen them. And for those others who have come to power in these days, Lord, I pray for them that you would restrain the wickedness and the evil they intend. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that you would provide your comfort to those who might have been affected by impartiality or unjust rule. For those, my Indian brothers, who go through it every day, Lord, would you sustain them? Would you remind them that you are in control? Would you give them the hope as they persevere and do that for us as well, Lord? Let us live today for that day, I pray. For Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.